This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. And if you are touting that as, see, I'm not really racist, sexist, misogynist, anti-LGBTQ, whatever, because look at this number I was able to find. You are part of the problem. Please stop. Please think through this. I would like to subtitle your point, meritocracy is a lie. I think that's right. I mean, look, Mm -hmm. our workplaces have so deprived themselves of good talent by believing that we can measure good talent. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Fancy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. On today's episode, we will be talking about several news items, including the loss of our beloved Rachel Held Evans. In our main segment, we're going to be catching up on several big ideas out there in podcasts and articles that we wanted to talk about. And then to close out the show, we'll be sharing what's on our mind outside of politics. Before we get started, y'all are doing so good following us on Instagram. We are so close to 9,000, which means we're only 1,000 away from 10,000, which means I can have the swipe up which is all I want in life. So hop on over to Instagram and follow Pantsu Politics if you don't mind. I really want this for you, Sarah. You're so close. Yeah, so close. Thank you, everyone, for giving this gift to Sarah. 
loved it. And she's doing such good work there. We need to support her in it. So this is a difficult show to start. As many in our community know, Rachel Held Evans passed away on Saturday. She was a friend of the podcast. She's been on our show to talk about her amazing book, Inspired. She just recently reached out to us with such generosity, invited us to come speak at her and Sarah Bessie and Jeff Chu's conference, Evolving Faith, in October. And she recently fell ill. I think the two of us, as well as everybody else, was desperately rooting for her recovery. Sadly, that was not to be. And she lost her battle on Saturday. She is both of our ages. We're both 37. She has two small children, a three-year-old and a daughter that's not even one. And it's just, it's just gut-wrenching. And I know everybody out there is heartbroken and really struggling with this. So we wanted to talk about that before we talked about anything else. I found out about this in my car on Saturday. I called you to let you know. I stayed pretty numb on Saturday. And then Sunday morning, I went into my church and my pastor came up to me and said, I just can't believe it. And she said, I'm going to talk about it in my sermon. Her sermon is part of a series on making the most of what we have. Last week, she talked about making the most of our planet. And this week, it was about making the most of our time. It was an incredible message and would have been any time. But but she said, I'm talking about making the most of our time. And I kind of put my hand on my chest and she said, Rachel did well. And that is when the floodgates broke for me. And I cried through the entire service. But I think that's such a good memory. And Sarah, I thought your tribute to her on Instagram was beautiful too. Use the word complete to describe her. And I think she did well. Look at what she packed into her time here and what she taught and what she knew, the wisdom that she had. You know, when I think about, I actually turned 38 in March, so I'm not quite in the 37 bracket anymore. But I've been thinking a lot about how I feel like I'm just now waking up to so many things that are really important in life and that she knew them and has been writing books about them for years, it takes my breath away, the wisdom that she had at this age. In my life, I've experienced people who had a sense of urgency about their mortality, attached to their mortality. But I never felt that with her. I just felt like that urgency came from a place of feeling and being brave about what was right and true and feeling the duty and responsibility to speak it, which I think is different and I think is a different kind of bravery. I had a very dear friend named Amelia who died in 2013, and and there were a lot of similarities. It was tragic. It was traumatic. And she also had children very close in age to Rachel, including a baby that had not yet turned one. And so I kind of was thinking back to that loss and how I thought about it at the time and, and how my emotions and feelings have changed since then. When she died, there was such bargaining and desperation and anger and in those years since, and and really over the course of my life, because I, I, you know, 
I learned earlier than I should have that, as a lot of people do when they experience trauma in their childhood, that the universe is chaos. It's it's just chaos. There is no order. There is no reason. There is a lot of chaos. And since Amelia's death and over time, listening to Megan Devine talk about grief, thinking about these things, you know, when you strip away the anger and the trying desperately to bring reason or to think about why or to even do the the really, really terrible, there's a reason for all this dance that we sometimes do in moments, you know, all I'm left with as I think about Rachel is just anguish. That's the only word I can think of. It's just anguish. And I am so grateful for her and the work of many others because in the face of that anguish, I do feel the presence and have faith in a loving God, spirit, energy, whatever you want to call it, that is just as anguished as I am. And that's all I can look to. You know, I I don't feel that frenetic sort of energy trying to look into the future and think what this means for her kids. And I can, I just have to be with the anguish. And it is, it's so awful and I'm so sad but I'm so grateful for her life and I'm so grateful for her work. And as I read the testimonies of this church she created, this body of people who, through her bravery and through her wisdom and through her love, were able to face the suffering and anguish in their own lives and feel that they weren't alone. And what a gift. And especially to be able to do that around something as fraught as being an evangelical, being a Christian religion in this day and age is just, it's unbelievable. It is something that will live on long past all of our broken hearts. You know, I have no doubt that when all of us are ash and dust, her words will still be out there affecting people. And that is, that just leaves me speechless. It really, really does. We talk a lot about what kind of country we want to live in. I think Rachel Held Evans asked what kind of universe we want to live in and what kind of relationship with that universe we want to live in. I loved this passage from her. For those of you who aren't as familiar with her work, I think this passage that I'm going to read tells you a lot about what she did and also why it's very political. She said, rather than wearing out my voice and calling for an end to evangelicalism's culture wars, I think it's time to focus on finding and creating church among its many refugees, women called to ministry, 
our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, science lovers, doubters, dreamers, misfits, abuse survivors, those who refuse to choose between their intellectual integrity and their faith or their compassion and their religion, those who have, for whatever reason, been farewelled. Instead of fighting for a seat at the evangelical table, I want to prepare tables in the wilderness where everyone is welcome and where we can go on discussing and debating the Bible, science, sexuality, gender, racial reconciliation, justice, church, and faith, but without labels, without wars. I also wanted to say for everybody out there, I saw a lot of messages on social media apologizing for how sad they felt about her. There was a lot of, I'd never met her. I didn't know her. I never held her hand. And as a person who has been apologizing for my orientation and traumatic experiences for a long time, like, let that go. It's okay to be sad about her if her work touched you and you never met her. I don't think anybody needs to apologize for that love and that grief is just one part of this picture. And I don't think that we need to apologize for it. And I don't think the people in her life who we are all so devastated for, Sarah and Dan and her children, I don't think they need us to apologize for that either. So the way that we have all gathered around each other and on in the online space is such a beautiful testament to the way Rachel gathered people in the online space. Because the internet is the, the wilderness, if I know anything. And those tables she set virtually and in real life, I think we're all beginning to see how big those tables were over the course of her life for really the first time. And I think to bask in that and to bask in that love and the impact of what she did is the path forward and the way we're going to take the next breath and face the next morning without her. And I think that's all we can do. I wrote about this on Twitter because I feel really strongly that we need more grief for people we didn't know, not less. It's a recognition that we touch each other in so many different ways. There are people that I interact with in my life all the time who don't know me as well as people who I've never met but listen to this podcast faithfully. There are people who are sitting in meetings with me who will never read our book. And so if you've read our book, you know us in a different way than the people who actually know us in real life, whatever that means at this point. And I think Rachel Held Evans would say that the way we are able to know those pieces of each other online is incredibly powerful. She changed people through her writing. If you've been changed by someone The idea that you wouldn't grieve them is crazy to me. You should grieve that. And part of what I respect so much about her work and the work of Sarah Bessie and Caitlin Curtis and Jen Hatmaker, they have finally said that you are allowed to be both Christian and in a state of anguish, that there is room for lament in the church. And in fact, we've done ourselves a disservice through this sort of cheerful onward, say a prayer and get over it mentality that we have applied to so many different things. They have invited us into grief 
as an important piece of humanity, as an important piece of communing with one another and with whatever higher power we believe in or don't. And I think that the sense that we're not entitled to be sad because we've never broken bread with someone is something that we should let go of. And how much more able to work through some of the things we're going to talk about next, how much more peaceful might our world be if we recognized that we can grieve people we've never met? Before we move on, I just want to say that this is a sad moment to say goodbye to Rachel's earthly presence. But I have no doubt in my own life and on this podcast that we will continue to talk about her and we will continue to wrestle with her ideas and her work. And so, you know, as we move on to talk about the news and violence across the globe and big ideas and the next podcast and the podcast after that, I mean, her work and her ideas will be with us and we will, she will live on through that. And I think that that is one small space that I find comfort in facing the anguish that we won't have any more words from her going forward. There is anguish felt in the Middle East right now. Over the weekend, 20 plus Palestinians, I've heard conflicting numbers, so I just want to say. Yeah, I've heard 22, 23, all over the place. Four Israeli civilians died over the weekend after Hamas and Islamic Jihad groups fired 600 projectiles at southern Israel. This conflict bubbles up, it de-escalates, it escalates again, and that's been a pattern for a long time, but the periods between escalations seem to be shrinking. And what the escalation looks like is becoming more intense. This was the worst violence we've seen since 2014 when there was a 50-day war over the Gaza Strip. Egypt and the United Nations seem to have brokered a ceasefire. The terms of that ceasefire are not going to be public. The Israeli government in particular doesn't like to share the terms that it negotiates because it doesn't want to be seen as negotiating with terrorists. Mm. Two million people live in the Gaza Strip, which is suffering Because it seems the centerpiece of all this conflict and what's fueling it is this trade blockade that was imposed 12 years ago by Israel and Egypt. It has tremendous economic impact. I I heard reporting today that the unemployment rate in Gaza is 50%. I just think, think about how hot an environment is when unemployment in the United States rises a couple percentage points. Think about how desperate things were during the Depression when unemployment was, I think, believe in like 30 or 40 percent. But like 50 percent, I can't even fathom. No wonder the the periods of time between these conflicts are getting shorter and shorter. It's such a hard situation. I listened to discussions about the Middle East peace plan that Jared Kushner has been working on for a couple of years. And Listen, I don't want to say that sarcastically. I can feel a little bit of derision in my voice as I even use his name in connection with this. I would love for him to figure this out. I think that would be fantastic. My understanding of what he is putting together is that it is primarily economic, that it envisions a lot of investment in this area. So no wonder he's motivated. That's where your derision is coming from, because even if that's true, which is great, I mean, he (laughs) I bet he stands to benefit from that development. Well, and I agree with you that unemployment 
is absolutely fueling the tension here. But I think the stakes here are so much higher than that as well. There is something reasonably existential going on between Israelis and Palestinians and something that I don't think an infusion of cash solves. We're going to talk in the main segment uh, among the big ideas that we're going to talk about. One of them is going to be a claims process and the distribution of funds after tragedy. And I really believe that there is no way out of this conflict in the Middle East without some kind of truth and reconciliation process that involves not only the violence inflicted on Israelis and Palestinians by each other, but by outside forces as well. Because this this region is suffering so much trauma and has suffered so much trauma for so many generations now that it's just deeply embedded. And the idea that a big infusion of what Saudi Arabian cash is going to fix that, I think, is misguided. There are also other developments in the Middle East region. The U.S. is sending a carrier strike group and bomber task force to send, quote unquote, a clear and unmistakable message to Iran. In a brief statement, John Bolton didn't say what specific actions or provocations the United States was responding to, but Mike Pompeo said it was not related to the violence in Gaza. He just says there's been escalatory actions from Iran. I just think that those two are itching for a fight, especially Bolton. The reason that it could have been related to the violence in Gaza is that many folks believe Iran is helping fund one of the Palestinian terror groups, perhaps both of them. And Pompeo said in the same statement that we will hold Iran accountable for anti-American action wherever it is. So even if it's not direct from Iran, where Iran is funding anti-American interest action we will hold them accountable. But we don't know exactly what this is in response to, which seems problematic to me. The United States has certainly taken specific actions to escalate this conflict with Iran, the most recent of which we talked about a couple podcasts ago, which was ending waivers for countries buying Iranian oil. So I would like to understand what we're responding to when we send a carrier strike group and bomber task force there. I mean, this I just don't believe Bolton and Pompeo when they say they don't want to escalate this conflict. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the theme of escalating conflicts, the House Judiciary Committee will vote Wednesday on whether to hold the attorney general in contempt for failing to provide an unredacted version of the Mueller report to Congress. This is not to be confused <laughs> with the fact that the attorney general didn't show up for the House Judiciary Committee on Friday, and they're trying to decide what to do with regards to that as well. Or to do with the president now saying that Bob Mueller should not testify in front of Congress. I just feel like that's like, thanks for your input, buddy. (laughs) Thanks for your input. Doesn't have anything to do with you. I do think a date has been set for his testimony, at least tentatively, May 15th. Bob Mueller will appear in front of the House Judiciary Committee. Well, you and I need to clear our schedules. No, I have a speaking engagement that day, so I've got got some things to figure out. But (laughs) I talked about the contempt process on the Nightly Nuance last week on Patreon in detail. And I put a little bit about this in our weekly newsletter as well. The upshot is I think the House Judiciary Committee should take this vote to put pressure on the attorney general to go get the court order that he needs to take the redactions off of the grand jury portions of the report and let Congress see it in full. And they can do that. And it's not going to amount to much because the next step, if if the House Judiciary Committee votes to hold him in contempt, it goes to the full House. If the full House votes to hold him in contempt, which they are likely to, 
The next step is for the Department of Justice to pick this thing up. And the Department of Justice is not going to pick up a contempt citation against the head of the Department of Justice. We've seen this with Eric Holder. We saw this with a previous administration official in the form of Ann Gorsuch, head of the EPA, whose son is now on the Supreme Court. So we know that administrations protect their own and the contempt power of Congress has become limited in recent years. And that's another thing that we've got to figure out in our country because the power of Congress has by its own actions and by the actions of the executive branch eroded so significantly that we are in a heap of trouble. Who would you like to compliment this week, Beth? Well, I would like to compliment the House on something important that it's doing. Representative Frank Poloni, the chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, has introduced a bill closing loopholes for robocallers. And I appreciate that so much. There's a loophole that robocallers exploit that he wants to close. He also wants to require telecom companies to provide blocking services for free here, here. And Senator John Thune, a Republican, is working on this, and there's bipartisan support for his bill called the Trace Act that would push telecoms to better authenticate calls and increase the FCC's powers to impose penalties and fines. I have set my entire phone on Do Not Disturb, except for my favorites, because I'm so sick of this. I've put myself on all the list. It doesn't work anymore. I'm very happy to see that Congress is taking action here. I just really think the nastiest part is how they started using local area codes. You're like, oh, no, is this my child's school? It's so dirty. It's like the way they put toys in the cereal aisle. Cut it out. It's rude, and you know it's just exploiting us. I don't like it. I put my kids' schools in my favorites, too. But, I mean, I don't get – when my phone rings, I know who it is because otherwise it does not ring. Mm -hmm. So I am complimenting the Republican leadership – in the state of Kentucky, all, well, it's not three branches, the House, the Senate, and the governor's office, because I'm so excited about this. The state of Kentucky just passed a new law that will license certified professional midwives for the first time in the state, probably since the 1970s. So it wasn't necessarily legal, but they wouldn't give a license. And so, you know, when I had my home births, I was just on my own to determine if the midwife I chose was safe and prepared and had the necessary training to have a safe birth for my children because I wanted a home birth. So the other irony of this is that Kentucky has one of the best midwifery schools in the state and then they would graduate and I'd be able to get a license. So I'm so excited that this bill is finally a law. It is due almost totally and completely because of the work of the Kentucky Home Birth Coalition and Mary Catherine DeLauder, who I believe is a listener to the show. She and this team have been working on this for years. We would hire, I've been a small, small part of this coalition. They would do big fundraisers and they hired a a lobbyist and just kept at it and kept at it and kept at it and finally got the Republican sponsors in the House and the Senate. The governor signed it into law. I'm so happy about this development. This is the this is just a total and complete picture of the system working how it's supposed to. Citizens got involved, they lobbied, they worked hard, the leadership listened, and now we have this great new law. I'm so happy about it. Can I just add in as well 
that this is a picture of what being a Republican should look like, because this is Republicans actually supporting choices for people in their care and actually supporting families making their own decisions. And I am so happy that the Republicans in power in Kentucky got behind this and so grateful to the many, many listeners of this show and their friends and all of the women who have undertaken just massive action to get this to across the finish line. Next up, we are going to be catching up on several big ideas from podcasts and articles that have gone viral that everybody's been talking about, but everybody does not include us. And we want to share our thoughts as well, y'all. So that's what we're talking about next up. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Pantsuit.
One more thing before we get started. We have the annual Pantsuit Politics Survey. Link in the show notes that we would be forever grateful if all of our listeners would fill out. It helps us understand how you listen, why you listen, what you want to hear more of on the show, where you are on social media, and just how we can best stay engaged and serve this community, which means so much to us. It feels like recently the internet has been dealing with lots of big ideas, and I feel like we're making some breakthroughs, okay? So we have podcasts and articles and documentaries out there that are really pushing the envelope on ideas about gender, on ideas about capitalism, on ideas about work, and I'm just here for all of it, and I feel like we are perpetually behind in having space to talk about these. So I just cleared the deck, and I said, Beth, I have all these big, huge ideas that the internet is gabbing about, and we have got to add our voices to the cacophony. We're going to start with the Netflix documentary, Knock Down the House, which I'm sure many of you have watched. Sarah, I know you were really excited about it. It follows basically four women running for Congress, most of those women running in primaries against Democratic incumbents, and famously... It tracks and focuses on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's unlikely ascendance from restaurant server to very powerful member of Congress. I loved you got to watch her just hustling that ice, man, slinging that ice, slinging those drinks. The film is directed by Rachel Lears, and it follows Cori Bush in St. Louis, Paula Jean Swearingen in West Virginia, and Amy Vaia, I hope I'm saying her name right, in Las Vegas. And these were all women primarying very powerful Democrats. And, man, first of all, I was so surprised to see the Justice Democrats and all these sort of beginning powwow brainstorming sessions happening in Frankfort, Kentucky. Who knew? Did you know that? I didn't. I was surprised when that popped up as well. I was like, that's exciting. And it made me wonder kind of like, what's what's in the works in our home state that we haven't seen yet? I know. I'm excited about that, too. I really thought the documentary did such a good job of showing the different ways that these women came to be involved. I didn't know that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's brother was the one who basically nominated her for Justice Democrats to to run. And, you know, some of them had really personal, heartbreaking stories. Some of them were just mad. And I, I just thought it was a really human portrayal of what it's like to get involved, what it's like to go up against these big machines and the way they were sort of joined together in this movement to challenge things. I just I found it really touching and empowering. I loved it. I got a message on Twitter from a longtime friend of the show, and she said, I have a question and wonder if other listeners feel this same sentiment. After viewing Knock Down the House, I felt motivated to get more involved in supporting women running for office, including looking what office for which I may run. But I keep going back to this idea of it's not that bad. What does my person add to this? Which is awful. I hate hearing those words come out of my mouth. For someone who was so intent on creating more political conversation open to all sides, I've now become quite apathetic. Am I the only one who was at one time so angry and now is settling for where we are? Hmm. I completely understand this reaction because I think one of the important things Knocked Down the House did is show how very hard this is. Mm-hmm. Only one of the women tracked in this documentary was successful. And you can see from the beginning that there is just something about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that got her there. 
And it's something that not all of us have and not many of us have. And I think it's easy to get discouraged and inspired simultaneously because you can just see what a slog this is and how much work it takes. And I think this is where we have to go back to something that we've been talking about for a long time, which is that you serve your community by running whether you win or not. And that a campaign gives you so much opportunity to do good whether you win or not. The thing is, it also takes a whole lot of sacrifice. And so when you look at the odds of winning versus that sacrifice, I completely understand how many people are going to say, pass. The other thing that this message made me think about, I started doing some reading about the allostatic load, which was a new phrase that I just learned. I was listening to someone talk about white privilege and healthcare outcomes and how Mm. in my region, maternal mortality for Black women is so much worse than for every other demographic. And that is regardless of education, Mm -hmm, regardless mm -hmm. of socioeconomic status. And it is because of the allostatic load, which is just the amount of kind of daily wear and tear stress that being a human being places on you. And because Black women carry such an enormous allostatic load, their maternal mortality rates are just higher. And I think that there's kind of a political corollary to that in that some of us are just, it's, I don't think it's apathy as much as just being worn down. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're totally right. I think, and it's it's the paradox of that feeling and that experience is simultaneously what motivates you to run and what makes it so hard to run and to win. You know what I mean? Like it's the that experience that can wear you down and feel and leave you feeling so defeated is the exact perspective that we need in the halls of power. But it is also the experience that can make any additional emotional, physical, spiritual, psychological burden, which running for office absolutely is and serving in offices. It's not like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won and all her problems were over. Her stress level was just starting. And so I think that that is what that's what's so hard about it. It is hard. And I wish that I had a really wise pep talk to deliver here. I think the answer is that you just have to look at what season of your life you're in and ask what Mm -hmm. your work to do is in that season. And I know I sound like a broken record about that, but I'm coming more and more to the fact that we can chase so hard for our entire lives and never catch something because it's not the right thing. Mm -hmm. And the more productive, beneficial, life-giving thing is to really get thoughtful and specific about what is actually ours to do right now. And so I think if you have that reaction to knock down the house, it's not something to beat yourself up about. It's something to ask yourself questions about. And maybe running for office right now isn't your work to do. Maybe even political activity isn't your work to do, overtly political activity. But when you support a nonprofit with enthusiasm, when you do your corporate job with enthusiasm, we're going to talk in just a second about how the corporate space needs advocates in a big, bad way. So I think you just have to ask, like, where do what what do what am I up for right now? That's the question. What am I up for right now? Since she is the sort of center point in a lot of ways, did you feel like you learned anything about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? I really liked the moment 
when they showed her right before the election saying, I know that no matter what happens, everything's going to change after this. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that really demonstrated a level of introspection that was compelling. I mean, she's a very she's a very compelling person. You don't have to agree with her ideas to to recognize that spark that she has. She's such an effective communicator. She cares, I think, in a very genuine way about all of the Mm -hmm. issues that motivated her to run and about representing her community. I like the way she handled that town hall that her opponent Mm -hmm. didn't even show up for. And she just doesn't take any crap from anybody. And it's it's refreshing. And and look, I think that gets in her way sometimes now that she's in Congress. But I would rather her hold on to it because I think that's why people elected her. So, I mean, she's a she is a fascinating person to watch. Yeah, I, I really like the patrol. I feel like I learned a lot about her. I also thought the moment with him in the parade where the woman with Joe Crowley in the parade and the woman says, oh, that dumb young woman or whatever. And he's like, she's not dumb. I appreciated that, dumb. too. I thought I'm glad they left that in there. I thought that was really nice. And I thought it was interesting to sort of watch his involvement change as he kind of realized, like, oh, dear. And I thought it was so fascinating. They didn't have polling the whole time so that her reaction at the end was so sincere because she had just had so little information. I think it's also a an interesting thought experiment of did she have a chance because there wasn't any polling? You know what I mean? Did she have a chance to really fire people up and get people passionate because there weren't media in their ears all the time saying never going to happen? Not that people weren't covering the race as if it was a long shot. They were. But I do think there's a difference between when all these numbers get layered on top of the narrative that it's a long shot. You know what I mean? So I I thought that was really interesting. I love the moment where (laughs) she's like trying to protect herself from the results. And she's like, oh. Never mind. No, wait. It's kind of a big deal. I saw reporters running to our party and like she can see her putting the pieces together. I just thought that was delightful. You know, the thing that I've been thinking about for days, there are two big takeaways for me after watching this. One is that I completely understand the impulse from Justice Democrats in particular to get corporate money out of politics. I also am worried about kind of a tax that we're putting on people who already struggle economically in encouraging all these small dollar donations. Like there is a part of me that has no problem with asking people with lots and lots of money to fund our election cycles because it's a, it's basically a tax on them, right? And they can afford to do this. Now, that's gone very wrong in a lot of ways that I fully acknowledge. But I also hate like that people who are already strapped economically are now having to put in so much money. I mean, that's a problem that I have with the continued expansion of the democratic field, because I think at some point this Mm -hmm. is so much money going into 20 something campaigns. I mean, at what point do you say, wow, there are better uses for resources than me being in and building the apparatus required to stay in this race? So, My question from that is not like it's not like let's shut down small dollar donations, but it is how can we do better than this? Is that something like a public system? If it's a public Mm -hmm. system, what does that look like? How do you keep the field from becoming 25 people that the public is, you know, does that make this problem even worse? I don't know. But I had a lot of questions about that. And also, how can we make it where 
corporate money isn't the worst thing ever. Like, how do we heal the toxic culture that has gotten us to to thinking that if it comes from a business, it's bad? So that's one question. The other one is this really contradictory personal reaction that I had to watching this documentary. I felt an insane amount of jealousy for people willing to stand up to their own party and wondering where those voices are on my side of the aisle and wishing so desperately for this kind of insurgency from women within the Republican Party. And the contradictory instinct that I felt in myself was like, gosh, I just personality-wise do not get excited about this kind of fight the man thing. I do not emotionally react to these speeches. I do not, you know, I, I mostly just think, can we make the man better, though? I mean, I, that is really my temperament. And I think that answers my first question of why we don't have this insurgency. And so I'm just struggling through that a little bit. That's really interesting. I've actually been evolving in my own thoughts about corporate donations in the opposite direction, <laughs> which that I think after I think if if I am doing the honest self-reflection that we talk about in our books. Why did I feel this way about an issue? Why was I passionate or not passionate? I think it doesn't make a lot of sense if you hear me talk about income equality for me to then be so blasé as I was for many years about corporate donations. I felt like it was just the game we had, and I had an absence of imagination and an absence of hope to see any real change. And I owe the people fighting for this type of change, a big apology, honestly, because I had candidates I liked who took corporate donations and I was willing to look the other way because I felt like that's how you had to play the game, specifically with Hillary Clinton. And I think I'm still doing that right now with Kristen Gillibrand. And so I'm really pushing myself on that issue because I think they're right. I think it has to go until we have a public system I'm not really sure there's a way to moderate corporate influence in politics. I think it needs to be an all or nothing situation. And so I'm really thinking through, you know, there are candidates like Gillibrand who I adore, who I think represent my values, but I find myself leaning more and more towards Elizabeth Warren and other candidates who are rejecting that structure and saying, no, we're not going to do this. It's not, we're not going to do this anymore. And I'm so thankful, like I said, to the work of the people in the Democratic Party who pushed and pushed and pushed women like the ones in this documentary who said, no, we're going to do this differently. And we can't wait for this. We can't wait for the process to change or the laws to change. We're just going to have to start manifesting that change within our own campaigns, even if it means we're not going to win every time. So I think that's really powerful. And I think the Fight the man impulse is just something I've had to face that's hard, which is, you know, I I read this and really reflected on a lot in Rebecca Tracer's Good and Mad, I think in particular, which is I think there's a small part of me that thought we can be good enough or we can inspire goodness and convince them that the power should be shared. And there's just nothing in human history that helps me conclude that that strategy works. 
with race, with gender, with LGBT rights, there has to be a forceful reckoning to have shared power when a particular group sits at the top. I think about our church close conversation, and I think so often you are right, especially in individual relationships, that inspiration is such a better strategy for personal change. But I think when we're talking about power structure, inspiration is not the best strategy, and often shame is, and grassroots action is, and we're going to force your hand because you're not going to do this willingly, and we've seen that now. If you look back at the history of this country in particular, but all of history— That's how that type of change has to come about. I think that you're right. And that's something that I've come around on quite a bit, that in a systemic way, it takes Mm -hmm. real disruptors. And I think what I'm coming to understand more is that the reason we haven't had one reason we haven't had that kind of systemic shakeup within the GOP, despite women on an individual level feeling That sense of the bees are going to come out of my mouth, right? I am so disgusted and angry is because I do think more of us are are kind of tempered like I am. (laughs) We're sort of like, well, okay, I'm analyzing everything here. What do I do next to change it? Here are the obstacles that I see. Here are the options. Where do I go from here? And it's I'm never going to go give a speech that riles people up the way Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can. Even though I don't think that I feel anything with less intensity, it just it comes across so differently and it would lead to such different outcomes. And I think that's just a that is a challenging thing to think through. How do I take the intensity of what I feel because it is intense? And figure out how you translate it into that kind of disruptive action in a party that needs to be disrupted so badly. And I think in the corporate environment, which is where we're going next, I understood how to do that. I knew it was a very long game, but I understood how to start walking in that direction. And I saw all the opportunities to do that. It's really funny. Sarah sent this article to me about And I think our listener, Katie, and several other people had sent it to us as well about how the gains that women have made in education and employment have not changed the wage gap because at the same time, we've had this resurrection in deciding that we all need to live in our offices. And Sarah was like, did you read this? And I was like, yes, I've never been less surprised in my entire life. (laughs) Yeah, we always have it. I was saying we have a different approach, which is when I find something that confirms how I feel, I'm like, I knew it. And Beth is like, mm-hmm, I knew it. Like, she, like you calm. <laughs> Whereas I'm like, I knew it. I knew they were lying to us the whole time. So this article by Claire Kane Miller is called Women Did Everything Right, Then Work Got Greedy, How America's Obsession with Long Hours Has Widened the Gender Gap. And it starts out profiling this couple in New York City, who sound very similar to many couples I know, where he logs the long, long, you know, 60 plus hour work weeks and she scales back to part time work to basically cover the gap in between raising their two children. And. It's really interesting. I think the most interesting part is that they do a good job of saying this is this is new. There's an overwork premium 
that has not always exist. The article says it's only in the last two decades that salaried employees have earned more by working long hours. Four decades ago, people who worked at least 50 hours a week were paid 15 percent less on an hourly basis than those who worked traditional full-time schedules. By 2000, though, the wage penalty for overwork became a premium. Today, a People who work 50 hours or more earn up to 8% more an hour than similar people working 35 to 49 hours, according to a sociology paper using current population survey data by Young Jo Cha at Indiana University, Kim Whedon at Cornell, and Mauricio Buka at the European University Institute. Okay, can I just summarize what is most important to me for everyone to take away from this piece of the conversation? If you are walking around in your workplace, searching for objective metrics, you are part of the problem. Mm. The LSAT score is not objective. The writing sample Mm -hmm. is not objective. The number of hours people bill or spend at their desks is not objective. The more we keep holding on to the idea that there is something that will actually make Mm -hmm. us gender neutral, colorblind, all the things, the longer it is going to take us to dig out of these systemic problems. These measurements are not objective. There is so much context baked in to every single way we assess people in the workspace. And if you are touting that as, see, I'm not really racist, sexist, misogynist, anti-LGBTQ, whatever, because look at this number I was able to find. You are part of the problem. Please stop. Please think through this. I would like to subtitle your point, meritocracy is a lie. I think that's right. I mean, look, Mm -hmm. our workplaces have so deprived themselves of good talent by believing that we can measure good talent. And I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, good talent takes so many forms that you cannot capture. And the tools you're using to measure have so much baggage that you cannot understand. That we're just, we're lost. We're totally lost. Honestly, I can get on a real soapbox about college here and say that as valuable as my collegiate experience was and as many people as I hope to have good collegiate experiences, you can hire amazing people who do not have a degree and you should hire them. We just keep perpetuating the same problems by searching for a number and you cannot capture the human potential with a number. And you also cannot capture all the ways in which you are inhibiting human potential by a number. The question is, the article seems to imply this was a subconscious, sort of not purposeful on the on the behalf of people at the top effort. You maybe don't agree with that. I maybe don't agree with that. Do I think that men in finance and law and accounting are sitting around rubbing their hands together saying, all these women are graduating and we've got to hire them. So let's do this to keep them down. No, I do not. But at some point, when you see the effects of what you're doing and when women are killing themselves to stack up to all your objective metrics, right? They've 
They've gotten the LSAT score. They incurred the ridiculous levels of debt to go to the colleges and and schools that you think are important when they have billed the ridiculous hours that you're asking from them. When women have done everything to meet that bar and then you move it again to say, well, if you don't get in at six and then maybe go to the gym around lunch and maybe get a drink in the middle of the day and come back to the office and stay here until eight or nine o'clock, you're not really committed to the work, then you've lost the benefit of the doubt in my mind. Because I've, I've watched that over and over. And this article points out, like, women can make it happen. They are doing all of the things that they need to do to be competitive with men. And they are still not ascending to the upper echelons of these professions. I'm sorry. I think that's because the bar gets purposefully moved. And purposeful, as you said very eloquently before we started, Sarah, is a matter of degrees. Because I don't think this is like secret meanings among men to keep women down. But I do think that you are being willfully ignorant at this point if you don't see this problem. That's why I think the power of the article is that they push this notion that this is a new requirement. Because I think what the men at the top tell themselves is that this has always been the way work has been. And this is always the requirement of work. And that women, because of they deem biological differences or desires with regards to being at home or being with their kid, whatever the narrative is, are just ill-suited to the way work has always been. And that's bullshit. And so I think that, right, like you said, it's not an evil scheme, but it is a, a twisting of the facts and the data, not just with regards to women and how they work, but the impact of that type of work on everyone's productivity and the health of the company itself That is problematic. And here's the other thing. It is bad for work for you to be there all the time. It is bad for your work to shrink the context of your life so that what office you sit in or what somebody said to you in a meeting or what title you have or whether you were half a percentage point behind somebody else in pay raises, if you shrink your context to where everything at work is so important to you, you are hurting the ultimate output of whatever business you're in. So it is not that women are less committed. I think women inherently understand and are dealing with all the effects of of kind of how we've structured civilization for hundreds of years. But I also think on the positive side, women inherently understand that a larger context benefits work. The bigger I can make my life, the more interests that I have, the more people I care about, the more I invest in outside of this work experience, the better my work will be. And that is why diversity in hiring matters, too. The more people we bring into our workplaces who understand and and just have, because of their life experiences, a larger context, the better the work will be. And that is seen in every study since the beginning of time. And if you're still sitting around believing that people are going to do better work if they're chained to their desk, you are being purposefully ignorant. So the question, though, is if it's if it is purposeful, even through the lens of purposeful ignorance, going back to our other conversation, they're not going to change. We're not going to inspire them to change just by being good enough, as women have shown. So what is going to make this type of change in the workplace? Because 
I think the the hard reality as well is that these changes track a lot of a lot of labor policy and a decrease in union participation and a decrease in you know pro labor policies at the federal and state level. I mean, I don't think that's an accident either. So, what is there anything we can do? You know, I, it's clearly not just about individual company cultures, although that's a huge part of it. So, there seems to be a systematic problem here. So, how are we going to get that systematic change? I guess, how are we going to demand that systematic change? Well, I don't know that labor policy impacts the specific issues this article was talking about because it was talking about the greedy professions, which have always been exempt from labor policy in the sense of worker protections, because these are all exempt employees, right? People who are not. Yeah, but when everything something like that changes in the 80s, that just sends up a red flag for me. Because I, I think union participation affects way outside just the individual professions and jobs that are unionized. Do you know what I mean? I guess the issue I see here is what this article pointed out, which is these professions have decided that because they are client service professions, everything is zero sum. If you don't Mm -hmm. respond, this is part of the article. If you don't respond right away, somebody else will. Right. If you don't drive this deal faster, somebody is going to. And I want to make all the money possible. Like there's a lot of good research about how the bubble should have burst around finance. The bubble should have burst around law in terms of what people were making. And firms are in a constant and miserable battle right now to try to figure out how to keep that effect from happening. So it's mm-hmm. been a lot of cost cutting and it's been a lot of hours increasing and it's been less hiring. And so fewer people just trying to grind out more work all the time. I don't know how you change this in the big picture, in the medium picture. If you accept the system as it is now, right? I don't have a vision for blowing up the system because that's not the kind of thinker I am. If you take the system as it is now, I think a, a huge part of the answer is that women who get to any position of power, if you are a woman partner in a law firm, this means you. If you are a woman partner in an accounting firm, this means you, right? Any position of power, you maximize your use of it. If you are a woman who goes in-house somewhere, you start hiring firms that are not just like well-represented in terms of their pitches to you, like, oh, they put a diverse team in front of me, cool. But a lot of in-house calculus on who is hired is kind of who's a safe choice, Right. And that keeps the work in the hands of financial and legal firms who have had the work for a long time because they're a safe bet. So be willing to take some risk. Right. Be willing to peel off work to firms that are all women or that are much more diverse, but quite a bit smaller. It's kind of the same thing in every business. Like we've got to start spreading the money around more to give more people opportunities to compete with the giants. And I think that as that happens, the, the, the thing is, most of these firms, and we saw this after the financial crisis with bailouts, like there just hasn't been enough suffering to cause people to really change the way they do business. And so the people who are in positions where they can create some of that suffering or really shake the culture that they exist in because these are bad people and there's really good work being done in a lot of these places. But you've got to really shake this culture to wake it up. 
And that's a long haul, but we have to accelerate the efforts that are being made there because inherent bias training and a couple of committees and throwing some money at your recruiting isn't going to get it done. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I do think that one big change that could happen, and I think this will lead us into our next conversation, 
We have two great recommendations that I got from Kendra, the lazy genius, in her lazy letter email, which y'all should all subscribe to. The first one was, and now listen, I can already hear the tweets and the emails. It's the Goop podcast, okay? I understand that Goop has put out some problematic content in the past and probably will again in the future. But this podcast is good, y'all. They did an interview about why women experience burnout differently than men. And one of my favorite things that the author of this book called Burnout that we'll talk about in a minute made the point is that you have to a holistic view of your life means that you also see yourself as part of a system. And whenever we talk about work and women and men, we have to see ourselves as part of a system that does not provide any freaking support to working families at all. No child care, no paid maternity, paternity leave, no support when your baby is new, when you have a preschooler. There's just zero. Not even awesome support once they get in public school and everybody gets out at three. So I think those changes would have a huge impact just if we, you know, decided as a country that we want to provide any support to people to represent our values as supposedly a pro-family nation, that would be positive. This has to happen on both sides of the equation. There must be public policy that supports this. There must be private policy that supports this, right? We can't fix this in a single arena, and we need to fix it. When you look around at what we're putting ourselves through, we send our children to school way too early in the morning when they're tired and not their best selves. We do that while we're trying to get to work ourselves for the most part, and that's exhausting. Or we have parents who can't figure that out because of their circumstances or because of the needs of the places that they work. And so you've got people working all night long and then trying to be parents all day long. Like what we're asking of ourselves and each other is exhausting and ridiculous. Sarah and I giggled so much on an airplane because I had just read a story. I think it was also from the New York Times about people who are making just oodles and gobs of money and are really depressed. And Sarah looks at me and is like, should I read this? And I said, no, because here's the TLDR. Rich people are sad sometimes. IDK. (laughs) And it is because everybody is working too much and too hard in contexts that don't make any sense for anybody's lives. Like, we're always going to be raising families, right? If human beings are going to survive, we're going to keep having these children. These children are going to keep being really needy for lots of periods of their lives. And we're going to need to make money to support them. So I think we have the ability as human beings, conscious as we are, to come up with a way to bring all of those pieces together that doesn't make us sick and stressed and miserable. Well, and you know what I think we're realizing is like the Internet or the newest app is not going to fix that for Mm -hmm. us. I think part of the reason we stalled out as a culture on understanding you know, we might have we might have gotten there sooner after everybody was burned the hell out in the 80s and early 90s if we'd said if if we thought, OK, this isn't working. So let's try something else. But I think the Internet came along. And we're like, oh, don't worry. An app is going to fix all our cultural problems surrounding work and labor and parenting. And spoiler alert, it didn't. And so now we're all kind of, I think reaching the end of the internet or at least seeing the limits of the technological revolution and realizing, oh, I think there are maybe some fundamental problems with capitalism and the patriarchy and racism and that's really impacting us. (laughs) So the book that the podcast addresses is by Emily Nagoski. And I just, 
I thought the this conversation about the impact of all this, especially on our individual cycles of stress, which she distinguishes from stressors, was so fascinating. I agree. I liked how she described how we all have this gap between who we are and what we're capable of and the person that we believe we are supposed to be based on all of the messages surrounding us constantly and that your psyche kind of creates this angry person. She called it the mad woman, but I think this absolutely exists for men too. And that part of you exists to react to this gap. And so sometimes the mad woman, as she describes it, is mad at all of the expectations. And sometimes she's mad at you for not living up to them. Mm-hmm. And it really kind of broke me listening to her talk about this because it underscored what we were just saying. The truth is we don't need more productivity apps. We need to be less productive. We mm-hmm. need to figure out what's not important on our to-do list instead of figuring out a way to get it all done. And we're getting worse at this, not better. I mean, that's part of the problem with the Internet. It's just increasing a lot of those expectations. And it's increasing pulls at our time. And it's making it harder in a lot of ways to figure out what is actually what what matters in the course of the day. You know, that's why people are saying, like, the most important skill we can be developing in our kids is focus. Because it's Mm -hmm. impossible to focus now and you can't get any work done. And so I just, I feel like we have this recentering that we need to do. And honestly, I can think of nothing that would make our politics better than recentering and starting to understand that more and more and more, harder, harder, harder is actually killing us. Her book is called Burnout. We've also had Anne Helen Peterson on to talk about her article about millennial burnout, which I think is is the professions got more greedy, not only in the work hours, but the types of work you have to do. And so many sort of white collar jobs, it's now, especially if you're like a writer or you're in media, you're a content producer, then it's about more than just the physical production of the work product. Now it's about all that that stuff that leads to burnout that the internet brought along, which is Slack and email and just all those additional modes of production that we've also carried over into our personal lives so that we need to be Instagramming our vacations and Facebooking about our kids. And I mean, no wonder we're all so burned out. One of my favorite things she talked about, which is I mean, I don't want to pat myself on the back here, but those researchers could have called me out. I had literally just told this to my best friend who's going through a really stressful period in her life. Last year, I came to like a very intense realization that I have stress management approaches. I do yoga. I exercise. I journal. I go to therapy. I have all these approaches. And so in, in the true mode of the Internet and the productivity culture we live in, I was like, check mark. I've checked it off. I managed my stress. Well, then I dialed my stress way up. I had like another kid. I decided to run for office. Like these are all positive things, but these stressors grew in my life. And I never dialed up the stress management because paradoxically, when you are stressed, you do not think you have additional time to manage your stress because you're stressed about these things you need to do. And so, but I, I realized that like, oh, wait, I, I added all this stuff, but I didn't add additional stress management. And that's a big thing that she talks about. Like if you dial it up, if you have more stress and more stressors, you're going to have more stress responses. And she talks about the cycle that 
you have a physical, this fight or flight reaction to stress. And you can't just tell your body the stress is over, chill out. You need to have like a physical way to tell your body, either through exercise, 20-second hugs, which I'm making everybody in my family do like every five minutes now. It's gotten to the point where everybody's like, oh, mom, and her 20-second hugs. Because that tells your body the stress is over. I thought that was so fascinating. And if you think about connecting the dots, all this work, not just at the physical office space, but online, email, social media, all these in, all this input telling us, like you said, the difference between what we're what our expectations for ourselves are or what the cultural expectations for ourselves are and the conflict between that and having the time to do to to have any leisure or to dial up your stress management and to deal with this like yeah no wonder we're all heading off a cliff man and even when you are dialing up your stress management time and tools at some point things have to go because mm-hmm. we we just can't we do not have unlimited capacity we can in organizations through hiring people and figuring out how to work cohesively in our team and using some of these tools. The tools aren't evil. Slack is not bad, right? In some ways, Slack can enable people to work in more flexible ways. There are good things, but we're using them for evil right now. You know, <laughs> if we, we we can create more capacity in our organizations and in our teams, but we can't create more capacity in terms of every individual human's day. Mm-hmm. And I think the most important decision that you can make for yourself, and especially if you lead a team or lead an organization, is what is not important or what is important, but I'm just going to decide we do not have space to do it well right now. Think about where we would be with Boeing if someone had said, mm-hmm. listen, we cannot get this plane out yet. We just can't do it right. And so we're not going to do it until we can do it right. Or how many news stories would have been better if somebody had said, we're not ready to publish yet? It's going to have to wait. I mean, Billy McFarlane would not be in jail if somebody looked if he'd listen when people said you can't do this in this amount of time. There are so many tragedies. If you look around us that could have been averted if someone had said, slow down, we're not there yet. And I just I feel like that is what we're lacking. And that's kind of the tragedy of our time. And that's a pretty simple problem to solve. Like you say all the time, Sarah, simple and easy aren't the same thing. Mm-hmm. But it is a simple problem because it requires subtraction, not addition. Tragedy is a good segue to our other recommendation from Kendra that we both listen to, which is the Without Fail podcast with Alex Bloomberg on Gimlet Media. He interviewed what he calls the tragedy expert, Kenneth Feingold, who has been started a career. He's a lawyer. He was the chief of staff for Ted Kennedy. He started out helping Vietnam veterans and divvy up and reach a settlement over Agent Orange and the damage done to them through Agent Orange. Then he became the man in charge of distributing funds after 9-11 to the victims and their victims' family. And now he's sort of the go-to guy for Sandy Hook, for mass shootings, for the Catholic sex abuse scandal. If there's money to divvy up based on a tragedy, he's the guy. I thought this was really fascinating. At first, I was kind of perhaps coming off of some of the other recommendations that we provided, annoyed by how he found himself in these positions because Mm. it was he knew a judge who recommended him for a thing 
He knew a senator who recommended him for 9-11. And it shows the perpetual cycle of once you are in the right room. This is why people go into crazy debt to go to Ivy League schools, right? Because once you're in the right room and you have the right relationships, the world is much less limited than if you haven't been in those rooms. And so that was frustrating to me because you could hear him going through this process of learning how to listen to people which is what so much of this job was. Now, I really commend him. I think he's a good person who worked really hard and put has put his whole soul into doing this work in ways that so many people who could have gotten tapped for this wouldn't have. He committed to meeting with every single claimant who wanted to have a meeting with him. And he found that those meetings were mostly not about money. The money was oh done. Gosh. He did the money, right? But people wanted to come in and talk about their grief. So I told my husband about this podcast, and he was like, oh, that guy, he's a piece of crap. He gets so much money from doing this. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know what? He did 9-11 for free, so I don't care how much he gets paid for every single other one of these tasks he takes upon himself. But his reaction was so strong. It really caught me off guard because the way that they portray him is very empathetic. Put a pin in that. We're going to talk about that in a second. But I thought it was so interesting that he talked about reconciliation and that people do want to be heard, but that the United States has this sort of cultural history of using money to reconcile tragedy and that we'll never be able to let that go. I think I disagree with him because I think it, he thinks it's a ter- he thinks it's a great avenue to reconcile. I think it's a freaking terrible avenue to reconcile because, like you said, we're, he's really talking about is how people wanted to be heard. But I thought drawing it and relating it to our cultural history with money was so fascinating. Well, I think it is both terrible and necessary because of where we are at this point. The thing I couldn't stop thinking about during this podcast, even though it wasn't discussed at all, is reparations, which I have Mm -hmm. come to believe is just necessary. I just think it's necessary for the indigenous population and for people with ancestors who are slaves to receive an acknowledgement and, and I know that everyone who disagrees with me about this has the reaction of, but it didn't happen to them and I didn't do it to them. Got it. My therapist spends a lot of time talking with me about intergenerational trauma. And he gave me the example of talking to a person whose family members had lived through a war. And this person did not live through the war. The family members did. And no one directly participated in the war. It was just that they lived through it. The person who was talking to my therapist about all of this was exhibiting all of the classic symptoms of being traumatized by war. You don't have to live through something to endure the trauma of it, to experience the consequences of it, right? And I just think we are, we're stuck because we have not as a country fully enough acknowledged that. And so as I was listening to him talk about these funds and how the money is just necessary, you must give people the money because you can't go anywhere after that. I thought this is the this is the case for reparations. But when we do reparations or maybe it's and not but, when we do reparations, it needs to be accompanied by a process like this where people can be listened to. Cuz mm-hmm. it has to be both. Yeah, I think people have to be heard. And I don't think, particularly with regards to race and to a large part with gender and a lot of things, people feel heard. Just pe- I mean, I think that's kind of the conversation we were having on Friday, even about 2016, is that people don't feel heard. Like, I was just thinking about that moment when you said, I think people just want to hear Hillary Clinton, the election was stolen and Hillary Clinton should have been president or whatever. And I was like, 
Yeah. I was like finding myself nodding. Like, yeah, I just want to hear that. It reminds me so much of this moment I had with my own mother <laughs> who missed. I was the lead in my Christmas program, okay, at church. It was a big deal. I was the lead. I had to memorize lines. I had lots of solos. And my mother went on a work trip with my stepfather to Alaska. And the story I always heard growing up, she would sort of blow it off and she would jokingly say, you'll have to have something to talk to your therapist about. Until I was an adult and I moved back and I remember where we were standing exactly when my grandmother said, you know, she really beat herself up about it. She almost didn't go. And my mother was standing there and I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, I felt terrible. I didn't want to. I thought I felt terrible missing it. I still regret missing it. But I'd like never heard that <laughs> in my whole life. And I've like never thought about it again almost, except to tell the story about how confirming it was to just be heard and for her to say, yeah, I felt really bad about it. Instead of sort of being defensive and blowing it off and saying, you know, worse things could have happened to you. It was, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, it did happen. I felt bad about it. it you, you are right to feel that we, I missed out on something major. And I just think how powerful those moments in our lives are when we feel heard, when somebody looks at us and says, I hear that what happened to you was terrible, and I'm really sorry about that. So this is a long episode, but I told you we had to do check. We had, we were catching up on lots of big ideas. And the last one we wanted to talk about, which is, I think, interesting if you think about the portrayal of Quinneth Feingold in this podcast, which is Invisibilia did an episode called The End of Empathy that everybody on the Internet was talking about. Basically, it was the story of a man leaving the incel movement told in the traditional NPR, very empathetic way. And then an intern came in and said, no, I don't think he deserves this empathy. I'm going to tell the story differently. I'm going to be empathetic with his victim and victims like that and do this differently. And it was this really interesting conversation that I don't think they took quite far enough. And the overall thesis of the intern in particular was we only have a finite amount of empathy. And when we tell stories this way, it builds mainly empathy for the perpetrators. And we don't spend enough time thinking about the victims. And as opposed to what I think NPR is always trying to do, which is put us all in the in the, the category of human being, having human being experiences. So I thought it was really interesting. I thought they did get the closest to what happens on Twitter a lot, which is how dare you demand, I think, through this person's position. You know, we saw a lot of that after 2016 in the, in the Trump profile voters. But I think they, they stopped just short of having a really interesting conversation about whether there is just inherent value in empathy. I mean, they cite statistics where, like, in the last five years, you see this dramatic decrease in people saying empathy is valuable, which I found really upsetting. I mean, I've had this conversation. I've literally had this conversation with my husband. You have a fine out. This was a, this was a fight about Julia Roberts, you know, very really, really important. And he basically was like, you have a finite amount of empathy and she doesn't need it because she's rich and famous. And I think that was her point. Like, you have a finite amount of empathy. And I do think you have a finite amount of sort of energy to dedicate to understanding things. Like you said, we only have so much time in the day. But I still push back against the idea that we should never spend any time being empathetic with those in positions of power or those with ideas we find even abhorrent because not because I want to help all those people, but because I think it's valuable and we learn more about them and we learn more about ourselves. I think one of the most dangerous things we do as human beings is I would never do that. 
because I think that is the the first step in a bad road. I think the the best way to think about some of these things. Now, I'm not going to be an incel, obviously, but the idea of I could do that. How did they get there? How can we prevent other people from getting there? And I do think empathy is an important part of that process. I gave a talk a few months ago about how limited empathy can be Mm -hmm. because it so much asks us to say, how would I feel in those circumstances instead of how do you feel? in those circumstances, regardless of how I might feel in identical circumstances. And what I was advocating for in the business context is more being attuned to other people. So being aware that their context is different from yours Mm -hmm. and they might be responding to something for reasons that you don't understand at all. And they might be responding in a totally different way than you would respond in the same circumstances. And they are still doing that thing and you cannot control that about them, regardless of how you feel about it. And so you have to figure out a way to get through it and to work Mm -hmm. with them and make whatever adaptations need to be made for the person to be comfortable and healthy and happy and productive again. And so... I think from a media perspective, it's not wrong to tell the incel story, and it's also not wrong to criticize the telling of the incel story. We're all just out here Mm -hmm. looking for more stories that reflect our own experiences or have something that can counsel our own experiences. I think that conversation is really good. I think that tension is really good. I always kind of get frustrated with Twitter because I just feel like Twitter – sustains itself on being pissed off in a way that's so unhealthy. But a great thing about Twitter is that it's a good place to say, well, now hold on a second. Here's a perspective you haven't considered. The trouble is when we think there's a right and a wrong answer to get to at the end of that exercise, because it's not wrong to understand the incel experience and to feel something about that, or at least to learn something from it. We shouldn't shut down the telling of that story, but But it's great to enrich the telling of that story with here are a lot of other stories that you need to think about in connection with this. And I just think it's a temperament thing, too. I think I like the idea of saying attunement, like being attuned, trying to understand as opposed to using the word empathy, which I think ask people is an is a big emotional lift no matter what. And temperamentally, I love information. Bury me in input. I always want to hear a different, a million different things and see it from a million different sides. But I understand and have learned over time that other people, that is a very anxiety and stress producing situation to be in. Not because they're not curious, not because they don't want to understand or learn, but because it, you know, everybody appreciates that information at a different flow in a different way. And so I think, too, that's it. You know, we all don't have to learn about these things or become attuned or even be empathetic in the same way. And that just sort of understanding your own temperamental approach. You know, that's why some people wouldn't walk on Twitter if their life depended on it. And they they know themselves enough to know that's not a good space for me. And so I, I think giving everybody grace to like, there's not, like you said, there's not just going to be one approach that's going to fix it all either. Well, this has been a long meandering discussion that I will be thinking about for a while, and I hope you will too, and I hope you'll join in the conversation. Since we went so far outside of politics, we're just going to wrap it up here for today. (laughs) On the Nuance Life this week, you are going to hear Rachel Held Evans' voice. We are going to re-air her interview with us about her book, Inspired, and we will commemorate her life more there. We hope you'll join us for that. Come back here on Friday for more news from this week. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. 
Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 